Welcome to Climate History, the podcast that explores what the past can tell us about the present and the future of climate change. I'm Emma Mosswild, PhD student in environmental history at Georgetown University. And I'm Dagmar de Groot, Associate Professor of Environmental History at Georgetown. Today, we're talking about teaching the kind of multidisciplinary history we've talked about a lot on this podcast. We're joined by our colleague, Catherine DeLuna, Provost's Distinguished Associate Professor of History at Georgetown University. Professor DeLuna is a historian of Africa before the 20th century and publishes in the fields of history, linguistics, and archaeology. Her first monograph, Collecting Food, Cultivating People, Subsistence and Society in Central Africa, won the Henry A. Wallace Award in 2017. Her most recent book, co-authored with Jeffrey Fleischer, is Speaking with Substance, Language and Materials in African History. Professor DeLuna, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Could you tell us a little bit about yourself and your research before we get into our discussion? Sure. So I'm an historian. I study Africa and I study Africa in the time periods before colonization by Europeans. And so um, what this means is that for most of the histories I work on, I'm doing reconstructing the histories of oral societies. These are societies that didn't leave behind their history in archival documents. So it involves um, pretty interdisciplinary work. I'm trained in archaeology and historical linguistics. And so part of what I do to reconstruct these histories is to um, build archives that allow me to investigate topics of interest, whether it's subsistence history or the history of senses and emotions, which is what I'm working on right now. So in my field, we'd call this um, early African history. I tend to work in the last 5,000 years up to about 1900. And I tend to work in the regions of Central and Southern and Eastern Africa, which are zones that share a united history because there are zones that are the places where Bantu speakers have lived over the last couple of millennia. And how has your research area and these different methodologies that you employ influenced the way that you teach about these subjects? Um, well, in history classes, we tend to um, ensure that our students encounter both secondary and primary sources, that they have a chance to read the kinds of materials we use to reconstruct history. But because I work in um, time periods and places where societies were oral, that means that in my teaching, I tend to have my students doing a lot of work with archaeology, doing a lot of work with oral traditions. Um, <laughs> I also have them doing a lot of work reconstructing dead languages that are no longer spoken in order to write histories of regions and periods that are inaccessible otherwise. This past semester, you were both on the instructional team for a course that you called Hyperhistory, a course in which I was also enrolled. I was wondering if you could both offer a little description of what the course was and how you came up with the idea for the course and what made you think that Georgetown needed a class like that. And Emma, you were not just enrolled, you were also an essential part of the teaching team. So... I just want to get that out of the, <laughs> out of the way first. Uh, but Kate, you were really the driving force behind the course. And so maybe, uh, maybe you want to start. Okay, so you're laying responsibility at my feet, I see. Um, That's right. <laughs> Blame. <laughs> <laughs> well, the course comes out of the fact that Georgetown has a um, unique feature, which is um, a pretty 
broad number of faculty members who are trained interdisciplinarily, um, and in particular who are trained to work with what we might call the harder social sciences and the natural sciences. And so we were intrigued to have the chance to learn more about each other's work and methods. Um, and the format of having a class that was um, enrolling simultaneously both undergrads and graduate students um, meant that we could um, kind of share that experience of learning about each other's methods uh, kind of um, with our students at all different levels. So you had faculty learning things that they'd never been exposed to before and undergrads and everything in between, masters and PhD students as well. So it was um, quite a quite a steep uh, learning curve, I think, for all of us, um, both in terms of how to teach this kind of class and, and what it's able to accomplish. Um, but the idea really stemmed just from the fact that we wanted to take advantage of, of this opportunity to, to learn more about each other's methods. And then I think what we're hoping is that this will bear fruit in terms of collaborations, in terms of cross-training each other's graduate students and these sorts of things. So yeah, it was a really weird course, I guess, right? <laughs> because, um, First of all, it was a union of two courses, right? So it was an undergraduate course, a big undergraduate course in what we call History 099, which are supposed to be courses that trains you know, students, very junior students in just the methods of history. So you know how you do history. And you take that, which is like, I don't know, what, like 100 students, something crazy like that, mm -hmm. crazy for Georgetown standards like that. And you combine that with a graduate course. Um, and the reason that you can weigh with com combining that is that theoretically all the students are coming at the uh, these non-traditional historical methods um, with the same level of familiarity basically right so they're, they're kind of encountering this stuff for the first time even so you know the graduate students obviously have more experience and so we ask them to serve as discussion leaders for groups of undergraduate students um, and so we would have one lecture per week and then break off into those groups where the graduate students would lead undergraduate students in mostly experiential stuff, at least at first, before we all went virtual. Um, so anything from like working with archaeological remains to reconstructing um, the history of language to coring trees, kind of you name it, right? Like all these different kinds of methods that we all have different competencies in, or at least know people in other disciplines who, who can do that stuff well. And that was another important part of the course was bringing in those people from really all over the country, right? Um, um, bringing in specialists who could actually lead our students through that stuff, um, you know, and we kind of structured that course then into units as well, based around our areas of expertise, but also areas that we thought were particularly important when you think about multidisciplinarity and interdisciplinarity. So uh, again, there was you know, a unit on um, the deep history of Africa, which you can answer through obviously um, Kate's methods and then a unit on climate change and its history, which you can answer through my kind of work. Um, a unit on historical epidemiology, our colleague Tim Newfield handled that. Um, and then a unit on diet as well, where uh, our colleague John McNeil took the lead. Um, and so, yeah, so structuring it into those units, having those groups and bringing in people, that, that was all kind of unique. And to do it, you know, with four different instructors, I think was really interesting. It had um, 
a lot of benefits and also made for some pretty intense logistical challenges as you both know <laughs> absolutely it was really interesting so your your question also like what problems does the course try and address um so just very fundamentally and going back to kind of the issue of climate change and environmental issues right the big challenges of our time are inherently multidisciplinary i think right you can't answer them with just one discipline um, and so for me of course that's climate change is, is the most important issue there but i think we all work on issues where history has a lot to offer but it can't just be history as it's usually done um, and so to get students you know experimenting with different disciplines i think was was essential to getting them to learn about these issues that matter so much today and, and what history can tell us about those issues no I, I would just agree with you and underscore that point about the issues we face today are issues that are going to combine anything to do with culture and anything to do with either physics chemistry or biology I mean, those are the intersections that we need to be training people to learn how to address. And by doing that in the past, as well as the present, we're able to underscore the, the sort of um, chronologies that allow for biology to change over time, the kinds of chronologies that allow for us to understand diversity and different ways that folks in the past have addressed similar kinds of problems, or perhaps had different kinds of problems that help us to highlight what's unique about this particular moment and therefore what's unique about the ways we need to do things like address um, mental health, the way we need to address climate change. Um, so that, that intersectionality, I think, in the research world is, is really a key problem that universities have to try to figure out how to address. And it's not easy to do because disciplines are the building blocks of universities. And it's really important for people to be trained in a discipline. Um, so doing interdisciplinary work takes being absolutely literate in your own discipline first. Um, and it takes therefore teams or it takes the time and opportunities to cross train and not all forms of cross training bear fruit, right? So um, I think that what's nice about courses is they're another building block of the university, but they're a building block that it's much easier to run in an interdisciplinary manner. So mm -hmm. I do think that coursework plays a key role uh, in the future for these sorts of issues. Mm -hmm. And so what, obviously this course is intended as a learning experience for faculty, for graduate students, for undergrads, what possibilities did you hope that the course would offer for students and instructors, or what were the main takeaways that you hoped everyone would get out of a class like this? Well, I, I think that there's a, a lot of um, ways we could think about your question. I mean. On the one hand, I think that we were addressing, you know, particular kinds of themes, themes of migration, themes of, of climate change, themes of health, um, accessing sort of undocumented past, past we can't know through traditional historical methodologies. Um, but I think that there's something else that's really powerful when you take a discipline and you put it into the, you know, harness it to answer questions that animate another field or that animate multiple fields. Um, I think that this allows chemistry majors to see the significance of using their XRF machine for somebody who's trying to understand, say, migration in the past or something like that. I, I think that seeing the diversity of you know, reasons why you might use any one method that seems to only do a certain kind of work in one field, I think that's really powerful for students. And it's one of the pleasures of doing undergraduate 
work, right? As an, as an undergraduate, you're being trained across multiple fields at once, even though you have a major and a minor or perhaps a couple of majors. Um, it's, 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 you know, we really get siloed as we continue in our academic careers. And so I think it's really great for students to see the different kinds of methods being used in by different fields. I think it makes, um, makes classes that might be gen ed and required perhaps a little bit more pleasant if they're a little bit closer to what you're familiar with but also remind you of the, the value of the kind of work you're doing for other fields that you know perhaps aren't chemistry or aren't physics or, or these sorts of things yeah absolutely i think in just in my a section of undergraduate students it was really clear over the course of the semester that at sometimes a, a science major or a student who was pre-med um, was able to share something particularly salient from their academic or personal experience with the class. And at other times, another student from a background in Africana studies or um, government and legal studies who was able to, to chime in. Um, so it was, it was really nice to see how these, these different disciplines could be relevant to multiple courses of study. Yeah, I mean, it democratizes, you know, sort of access and, and to expertise as a student in the class when you're in class discussion and you get to mm. take your turn kind of knowing something that, that helps your peers along the way. I, I guess maybe the way to think about this is also how, how students imagine history, right? Um, especially students who are coming into university, which is the majority of our students. And um, I think they still have the impression of history as being mostly about memorizing things and uh, as historians working sort of by themselves, maybe they think about it as working with texts, right? All these kinds of things that none of us really do, at least not, not entirely, <laughs> right? I guess we memorize some things and we work with text a little, but you I'm know. terrible with dates. And I tell my students that straight off the bat. So am I. <laughs> How can you be an historian if you're bad with dates? I'm terrible with dates and terrible with names. And and I think they, they imagine history as, you know, being confined to, to the past as well, right? I guess you do it because you're curious about the past and that's it. And with this course, we show them, well, it's more than any of that stuff, right? That historians, obviously, we, we can work in teams. We work with all of these different kinds of sources that, for the most part, they haven't heard of before, whether it's genetics or it's, you know, the interior of trees and ice cores or, you know, what have you, even the, the building blocks of language, right? Um, a whole bunch of different things, artifacts. Um, and we do this kind of work in part because we care not just about the past, although we do that as well, of course. We do have that curiosity, but... Um, we're deeply passionate about the present and we feel like the best way of contributing to something to change in the present is by drawing on the past. Um, so in that sense, I think it really opens up our field, opens up history and um, opens up the uh, range of possibilities that students see for themselves in history uh, when they take this course. And so I think for a lot of them, it was at least potentially kind of transformative in terms of not just, you know, how they think about the discipline, I guess, but even just how they think about the whole value of the past. So I hope that that is something that they take with them. Mm -hmm. Maybe that's ambitious. <laughs> well, it's interesting because obviously halfway through the semester, we had kind of an abrupt turn. Um, when that was the, interesting. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, the entire course moved online when Georgetown switched to virtual instruction in mid-March. Um, so this logistically 
challenging course became even more logistically challenging. And I was wondering if you could talk about the challenges of putting together a course like this and then how those challenges um, were exacerbated by the switch to online. Because I think one of the interesting things is that the logistical challenge of moving online was kind of balanced by the fact that we were in the middle of a historical epidemiology unit and suddenly history became more relevant, more salient perhaps um, because of what was going on in the world. Yeah, that transition was incredible. And to have it happen right in the middle of that unit was, um, I think that it, it did fulfill on the promise that Dagomar was suggesting of hoping students see the value of thinking through parallels and disjunctures with the past. Um, when, you know, we were watching in the news, all these parallels being drawn between COVID-19 and the, you know, influenza, the Spanish influenza, right? And then to have a specialist be able to explain the differences and sort of what was unique about each situation and therefore what kinds of figures were more reasonable to study, uh, to understand its impact on the population and all the rest. That was really powerful. Um, but, but I think that, you know, more generally, one of the things that happened as the semester unfolded was just this sort of parallel problems that you see um, and parallel methods that you see between different um, different sort of disciplines methods were sort of drawn out in ways that I think were really powerful. So when we're talking about phylogenetics in population genetics or phylogenetics in historical linguistics or phylogenetics in you know, the, the kinds of data that, that Tim Newfield works on with the, the sort of genetics of, of disease, these kinds of parallels were emerging, the parallels between gladochronology and molecular clocks, the ways in which there might be great promise if scholars begin to kind of look at the way interdisciplinary work is being done in other parts of the world for different kinds of questions rather than similar kinds of questions. Um, because we might end up finding common solutions to issues like the problems and challenges of gladochronology or molecular clock. So I think that one of the things that happened as the term kind of continued in terms of um, the, the, the sort of benefits of, of teaching this kind of class and teaching it in a way that is foregrounding the data sets and using labs to let students play with them was very much the, the sort of way that we began to see the parallels between the different methods as used in different disciplines. The challenges of teaching a course predated <laughs> this course, predated the transition to virtual teaching. Um, and I think the biggest one was just, you know, when you teach a course, usually it's just you and maybe a TA or two TAs maybe at most. And, and um, that requires some conversation if there is a TA, but in general, the decision process is pretty streamlined to say the least, especially if it's just you, which often in Georgetown it is. Um, but now in this course, we had to have you know, regular meetings and sometimes disagreements, right, in terms of how we would structure things. And we all have our you know, similar but still distinct ways of, of addressing certain pedagogical challenges, right, um, and issues. And so it was very much a, pro a process of discussion and negotiation. And it required a whole bunch of kind of logistics that, that courses don't usually have and a lot of extra time in that regard too and learning, frankly, as well. Um, then in terms of switching to virtual, I think this course, in one way, it was easier to do that because of what we were already talking about. So it was kind of powerful in that sense. In another sense, um, it was incredibly challenging for a few different reasons. 
Um, one is that this course, one of the things that made it so unique and special is the experiential learning that we try to emphasize, right? And stuff like coring tree rings, you can't do while socially distanced in your parents' basement, <laughs> right? So, so it really did, um, it did undermine that a little bit, which was, I think, really tough for all of us because we were all so excited about it. Um, another th challenge that I had and that Tim Newfield had and Kate, I, I know you had as well, though your kids are a little bit older, but, you know, we all have families, you know, I had to teach from a closet, Tim had to teach from a living room with his kid, you know, ramp, rampaging in the background and shooting Nerf guns at him. So, so that, um, that wasn't unique to the course, obviously, because a lot of people have had to do that. But um, boy, it did make things enormously harder. And then just on a very kind of basic level, figuring out things like security for Zoom and all that kind of stuff, right, was, wasn't easy either. Tim gave his, gave his lecture on the Spanish flu while being Zoom bombed. So, <laughs> so um, yeah, that was a unique experience on, on those fronts too. And then even maybe on a more profound level, in terms of thinking about the value of history for the present, the historical epidemiology um, uh, unit gave me a lot to think about as well. So this is obviously a unit on the history of disease, right? And kind of how we reconstruct it. And one of the things that, that kept coming up is obviously how this is, is different from what has happened before, right? And how we shouldn't be too quick to rush into identifying similarities in the past. Um, nevertheless, in some respects, the social impact of what's happening now is you know, perhaps exceeds anything that has happened at least in the last hundred years or so. And so what we, we can actually learn from history there that is actually concrete and actionable. Again, it was, it, it's one of these big challenges in environmental history, especially um, that it's, it can be hard to really figure that out without a lot of extra work. And, and so at least for me, it was very thought provoking um, and something that I'll remember for a long time. So, so I just realized that Dagmar talked about all the challenges and I was giving glowing discussions of the rewards. Um, and I'm not really sure what that means about the two of our personalities, but um, <laughs> well, <laughs> nothing good about mine. <laughs> on the rainy day. Um, I mean, you, you asked about like challenges and rewards, right? And so like, I mean, to add to the challenges and to build off of Dagmar's very poignant remarks about the, the problem of um, foregrounding similarities and and quieting disjunctures in data sets. I mean, I think that one of the big challenges, you know, both pedagogical, like how do you teach somebody a method well enough that they can be given data sets that disagree and try to reconcile them or deal with them in a responsible way? Because data sets usually do have sets of disjunctures and we need to um, pay attention to that, those. They tell us something, a different kind of something than when data sets agree. Um, or when parallels, historical parallels are are good. <laughs> um, but but these disjunctures are really very revealing and very important for instruction. And so I think that both in terms of um, parallels with the past, you know, as, as sort of like learning from the past, um, at, you know, as an enterprise that, that draws people to history. Um, I think that there was also in the class, you know, both on that broad sort of scale of thinking about the value of history and its relevance, um, the, the problem of disjunctures and similarities was a real issue. And then, you know, pedagogically in terms of using labs as time 
to allow students to play with data sets, but data sets that are representative of a more sophisticated archive that isn't neatly put together in a puzzle-like way so that there's a right answer, but actually has the sorts of disjunctures that are made by humans interacting with their world, right? That, you know, all data sets have these sorts of things and, and being able to um, create exercises that allow students to experience that disjuncture, um, I think was one of the biggest challenges that I feel like I faced in this class, um, just because we were going through the different units so very quickly. I mean, mm. maybe learning moment for me was the sort of, oh, we need to slow down if we teach this again. Yeah, yeah. I had a huge struggle with that. I, I, I think I, I confided that to you guys. Um, but, you know, the climate history unit was, um, I don't even remember how, how long it was. It wasn't long at all. And I, I, I felt compelled to talk about all of climate history in a single, in a single lecture, which was probably not a great idea. <laughs> from a, was it from the Younger Dryas or was it before that? I went too far. <laughs> Too far, I never go too far back. <laughs> yeah, well, I think it's interesting because all the challenges of teaching a class, the rewards of teaching a, a course with scholarship that is evolving so quickly, all of that is magnified kind of to the nth degree by having four experts teach the course instead of just one. And then the challenges are similarly magnified. So it's interesting to see. Um, this course is kind of a crucible for working out so many different sets of logistical and, and disciplinary and interdisciplinary challenges. Definitely a crucible. <laughs> <laughs> Trial by fire. <laughs> I'm wondering if we can talk about collaboration between disciplines because that's really at the heart of, of this course and it's also frequently at the heart about what we talk about on this podcast. And I think it's interesting that this course was an exercise in interdisciplinary collaboration on the part of the faculty and on translating interdisciplinary collaboration to an undergraduate classroom setting, something that I really never had a lot of experience with, uh, my own undergraduate experience. So what did you learn about interdisciplinary collaboration and how that translates to, to teaching? I, what I learned from the class as a researcher is how much more time I want to spend reading in interdisciplinary literature as if it is its own genre of literature. It's not. It's not a, it's not a field of scholarship. Hyperhistory doesn't exist as a field per se. Um, and even if I'm working on a project that doesn't involve any climate history or I'm working on a project that doesn't involve any disease history, although under the influence of both um, Dagmar and Tim, it seems like my current project's have a little of both of those now. Thank you. <laughs> um, it, it's reminding me how important it is just to read other research investigating questions that are not the questions I'm asking, but are using similar kinds of combinations of disciplinary archives or similar kinds of combinations of instrumentation. You know, how, how are folks using XRF data? How are folks using XRD data? <laughs> how are they using, you know, um, um, multi-spectral imaging or these sorts of things. Um, so I guess for me, it's under, underscoring the significance of trying to do, um, trying to treat interdisciplinary scholarship as something 
that itself needs to be kept up with as a field of research. Um, it's not going to be the case for people's tenure files or for you know peer review that, that this is necessarily how folks will conceive of it. But for me, I think that was really powerful because um, we face similar kinds of problems of scale, of um, agency, of um, voice, of um, just simply the challenges of dating uh, in many cases. And I think that it helped me to see how other scholars were doing this kind of work uh, to kind of take some of their approaches to similar kinds of methodological problems, if not research problems, and to kind of incorporate it into the work I'm doing. Um, now, I don't think that any of that would have been visible necessarily to students. Um, in fact, if, if it was, I am deeply impressed by our, our, our students, I must say. But I think that that was something that I really learned about um, interdisciplinary research from doing this class and from teaching and from learning from my colleagues and the, and the instructors that they brought in, the scholars they brought in to talk to our students. One thing very concrete that, that I realized is that in my climate work, I need to think more about disease, frankly. And when um, uh, doing multidisciplinary work or doing group projects, I need to think more about the possibilities for historical linguistics. Because um, that in particular, I found to be really, really interesting. It's barely, if ever, been used in climate history as a method. And uh, I can just see it illuminating all these histories of all these peoples who have scarcely entered um, the field, except in terms of just like vague assumptions that people make about their histories. And usually assumptions that don't give them, you know, these populations any kind of agency. So, so I think that that was really on a very concrete level that that was really transformative for me and then uh, kind of on a broader level and this is only partly addressing the question but over the last semester particularly through this course i started thinking more and more about how central teaching is to my job and i know that sounds kind of weird because of course teaching is going to be important for what i do but um just in terms of outreach right um i think so often we distinguish teaching from outreach. You know, outreach is something you do in addition to teaching. Mm. And just, you know, talking to students and, and gaining an impression of what this course and what some of my other courses meant to them, um, maybe realize that, you know, when we do kind of our normal outreach, whether that's on Twitter or elsewhere, the engagement really is very, very shallow. But of course, when you teach a course, the engagement can be much bigger and the influence can be much greater. And so for me, I'm leaning more and more towards de-emphasizing certain kinds of public outreach that I have been doing. And maybe not re-emphasizing, but just like pouring a lot of energy into teaching, um, even more energy, I guess, to the extent that I'm capable of doing that um, going forward than I have in the past. So. Mm -hmm. And, and one way of doing that is with these kinds of really bizarre courses, but like important courses. <laughs> I, I think that the other thing that came out of this um, semester for me anyway was, you know, when I was teaching the archaeology section or the historical linguistics or when we were doing the dendrochronology under Dagmar's mm -hmm. guidance outside, um, I think that this helped solidify for me the fact that courses like this also can and should be run as field schools that the field school model that's used in other disciplines is a really valuable one in history too or running interdisciplinary field schools is a very valuable enterprise because it helps to students to see the faculty themselves 
working on a problem and speaking to each other, not always knowing each other's methods inside out or not always knowing what one um, group revealed in that day's research and then kind of coming back together at the end of the day and kind of, you know, revealing the experience of learning as you go and revealing the, the sort of um, ways in which, you know, the research that you do that day helps solve certain puzzles or raises new questions that reverberate across the team working on a similar kind of problem. I mean, I could imagine us teaching this kind of a class as a field school rather than just a regular semester kind of course. Um, so getting students, giving students the opportunity to produce the data as well as to work with the data that's already been collected, processed, cleaned for them, made into a tidy little lab exercise. I think that seeing some of the uncertainties that unfold around fieldwork would be, would be powerful as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, just watching students core trees and getting a chance to do that myself or handle potsherds and things like that. I think more of that experiential fieldwork component would be really exciting. Touch the, the artifacts and it's another to learn how to, you know, peel back the soil, the you know, sediment layers one by one and to see the stratigraphy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that actually leads into a broader question that I wanted to ask about how we can rethink undergraduate teaching more broadly and other ways in which this has been done or could be done in the future. And I know Dagmar, you um, have experience with that at Georgetown particularly. Yeah, I mean, I, mean, I think the first thing to go back to, right, is, is should <laughs> uh, mm -hmm. it be rethought? Um, and again, you know, at Georgetown, I do think there's something at Georgetown that lends itself a little bit more to, to this kind of rethinking in the sense that we are I think a little bit more interested than most places about scholarship for service, right? And about engaging in the world as it exists right now, um, which I think permeates into our history department as well. And that a lot of us are, are working on these issues that are, in my view, of great present significance. Um, so I think there's an urgent need for rethinking and again, multidisciplinary rethinking, because again, you know, most of these issues that matter so much now are multidisciplinary. And then in terms of how to do that, I think this hyper-history course provides a really interesting model, but at the same time, a model that isn't available to every institution mm -hmm. um, or to every department. One thing we have tried to do at Georgetown as well is specifically centered around this kind of big multidisciplinary problem of climate change. Um, and yeah, so for the last three, four years, we've developed and then run something called the core pathway in climate change at Georgetown, where um, we offer basically half semester courses. We call them modules. They're each like seven and a half weeks long um, that students can mix and match. And they all tackle the issue of climate change from the perspective of a different discipline. So I teach two in history, for example. One is on global warming and one is on the little ice age. But there's courses in you know, everything from chemistry to theology, again, that students can kind of mix and match. Um, there's about 100 students that are in this program, and several times during the semester, they meet for what we call integrative days, where they either do a group activity or hear from a speaker or do something that is inherently sort of multidisciplinary, but they're all doing it together from the perspectives of their different disciplines that they've now been learning about. Um, so that's, I think, 
is going to be a little bit more accessible to different universities. And of course, what makes that important and valuable is that students have agency in terms of constructing their own pathway through these issues, but the pathway is always going to be combining a lot of different disciplines. And, uh, and I think it's been powerful for our students. I would add that I think we could also ask the question of who's responsible for making these sorts of educational opportunities available. Courses mm -hmm. are one way of doing it, to be sure. I mean, if you think about graduate students, we can ask about the role of professional organizations. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that I um, find myself doing every couple of years is um, running kind of historical linguistics boot camps at different kinds of venues, whether it's the African Studies Association or um, the Society for African Archaeologists, um, training people in how the method works, letting them ask questions, letting them play and, and use exercises to see how it works. Um, and so, I, you know, the American Historical Association is um, another venue where this kind of thing could be done to create broader access for graduate students who are training in places where there isn't a specialist in this kind of a method, for example. One-on-one um, -on -one tutorials are, are great as well, but, um, or field schools. Field schools are nice because usually you can get in on the field school of a faculty member at another institution pretty easily. Um, and, and so that allows you to then cross train across disciplines in the summertime during research um, based field schools um, and some organizations like the NSF specifically target making opportunities for undergraduates as well as graduate students. Um, and another place I think that we could um, we could harness, you know, another sort of institution or, or journals as institutions, right? So the supplementary materials we can produce are potentially um, valuable places for training and learning. Um, so for example, I'm working on a piece that I hope will end up being sent to a journal that has supplementary materials section. It's a journal that is usually the domain of, of historians, um, but their supplementary materials are quite interactive and include um, both sort of sound and, and video and, and image um, and so it would be a great place to develop some background supplementary materials on how the method works and how those who don't want to become specialists in something like historical linguistics or archaeology or something could still learn how to be um, savvy consumers of the data or how to um, manipulate the um, protoforms is what we call them, the reconstructed words that have already been produced by specialists in order to incorporate the data into their own research. So I think that we can, you know, certainly for graduate students and for faculty, we kind of forget the fact that faculty also need to continue to be learners of other disciplines, uh, that there are all kinds of other places that we can make that learning um, accessible. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it's much more about the type of learning rather than the format of a specific kind of course, since there are so many other opportunities for for teaching these kinds of approaches yeah i mean you know when we're thinking about the undergraduate audience it of course makes the most sense to be targeting coursework first but for thinking about graduate students and faculty um, there are many more opportunities and in fact it's a lot harder for faculty to carve out time to take courses i think which is one of the benefits of team teaching as we found <laughs> out this semester it was a way to kind of carve out time to really engage with each other's research and, and expertise to wrap up i wanted to ask you both to make a prediction if i could we talk a lot on this podcast about the relevance of climate history to the present we've talked about this already um, in this conversation and we often come back to this complex multidisciplinarity and I'm wondering if you 
foresee a broader swing towards this kind of multidisciplinary learning, multidisciplinary teaching? Or I'm wondering if you think courses and learning opportunities like this will remain the exception rather than the rule going forward. So maybe I'll, I'll dive in first. I think it will depend very much on the educational system in different countries. So what we're capable of doing at Georgetown is not necessarily what you're capable of doing at, at Oxford, for example. And by the same token, what we're capable of doing at Georgetown is not going to be the same as what you're capable of doing at many other institutions in the United States. So there's a level to which this will be specific to different institutions and different countries and et cetera, et cetera. But in general, I mean, when you think about the future, <laughs> right, um, as we so often do, in 30, 40 years, I, mean, I feel like the world is going to look radically different. And it's going to be powerfully shaped by a lot of the forces that only are intelligible through inter and multidisciplinary education to focus on climate change because it's probably what i know best the world is only going to be shaped more by climate change as we go forwards right um and so it's unimaginable to me unless there's something horrific in our society which may well be the case but it's unimaginable to me to consider that you know these kinds of courses will not become more common and may in fact become the rule rather than exception, um, just because of the overwhelming urgency of the challenges that they are meant to illuminate. So there's that. And then also, Frank, on a very practical level, I think these kinds of courses are popular among undergraduate students. At least that's been my experience. I mentioned to you earlier when we weren't recording that I taught um, uh, a course that wasn't multidisciplinary, interdisciplinary, just very traditional uh, history. And those courses can be incredibly valuable, but in my experience, the enrollment was also a lot lower than the more inter and multidisciplinary courses that I have taught. Um, I think there's a real thirst for this kind of stuff among students. So, I mean, obviously we all think about enrollment, but just on that very practical level, just for that reason, I think you'll see more of these kinds of courses being offered. We haven't really talked much about what it takes to teach these kinds of courses yet. Um, you know, obviously there's a graduate student dimension to this as well, and there's a level of education that has to happen for faculty even to be able to teach these kinds of courses, right? But um, that might be a different discussion, but I think that's part of the equation as well. But I, I do also think that there'll be more people who are interested in pursuing that kind of, in terms of faculty anyway, self-education uh, as we go forwards too. I mean, I'd agree with this idea that um, courses like this will probably increase in number. I think that um, part of this is for many of the reasons that you know, Dagomar has given, uh, particularly the fact that for undergraduates, being able to walk into, say, a history class and use your chemistry background as a foothold in that class is really powerful and really important. Um, so I think it makes one discipline more accessible when it's when it's um, bringing in other disciplines. Um, but I, I think that this point about the training, what it takes, that, that there's a steep learning curve to, um, it's not that this is any harder than any other kind of research, it's just that the learning curve is made different by the history of higher ed and the history of individual disciplines. It might be that, that this kind of work will become its own discipline, that we see some hints of this in um, places, institutions that have created programs specifically that bring different 
kinds of scholars together to address the so-called science of the human past, for example. Um, I think in the United States, that's going to be slightly different, and it's partly going to be governed by the way that funding works. And so the other thing to be thinking about here is the relationship between funding, faculty research and training, and teaching. And this is something that I think um, universities should be thinking about and planning for and worrying about. It's something that I think foundations can step up and show a little bit more leadership on. Um, you know, in our country, we have a funding scheme that comes out of the sort of mid-century two cultures debates. And so we have humanities on the one hand and uh, sort of sciences on the other and, and sort of some social sciences are wrapped up into the NSF. Um, and so I think that that creates a very particular dynamic if you're doing interdisciplinary research because there's only certain kinds of methods and questions you can foreground for certain kinds of funders. Um, you can't go to Mellon and say you're going to do a bunch of chemistry work unless you can explain that it's answering a humanities-based question. You can't go to the NSF and say you're interested in this humanistic question, um, but you're planning on using archaeological research to answer it because they don't want a humanistic-based question. They want a science-based question. You have to formulate the questions differently for different kinds of audiences. This ends up shaping the research and it ends up shaping the teaching down the line as well. So I think that the, the sort of learning curve or the transformation curve is, is quite steep, particularly in the U.S., and it is something that um, it'd be interesting to see a little bit of thinking around and conversation around. Um, and I think that this is something that all of us who also are trying to publish in interdisciplinary fields are facing as well, this sort of gatekeeping, um, disciplinary gatekeeping um, that, that kind of happens with journals and, and, and book publishers as well. So these are all problems we're sorting out, that we're identifying, that we're trying to address, uh, but it will certainly take some time. And then I think you'll see some of the innovation happening first in the classrooms, right? Because classes are easy to pull together as interdisciplinary, well, not easy as this semester suggested, but <laughs> so, it's something you can pitch and have accepted more easily perhaps than, um, you know, than a research proposal or these sorts of things. So all these things come together in different kinds of articulations and configurations. But, um, but I think that, you know, the innovation maybe will come in teaching, um, but that, uh, you know, it, it being a sustained kind of innovation, it, it, you know, forging new kinds of interdisciplinary fields and new kinds of questions that emerge from interdisciplinary research is going to be very much connected to the way that we rethink funding um, in the US at least uh, and foundation funding, government funding for research. Mm -hmm. So let me throw that question back at you, Emma. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, as someone who majored in history and environmental studies as an undergrad, had a pretty interdisciplinary introduction to environmental history, and I'm continuing that trajectory at Georgetown. I think there the the trend does seem to be kind of leading in the direction of more interdisciplinary coursework for sure. And I, I agree with you, Dagmar, that I think the demand is there on the part of students um, and students from a wide range of backgrounds too. So yeah, I can see these courses becoming more and more common, but I think the academy and universities aren't set up for this kind of work. So I think that presents a big problem for graduate students like me who are seeking this kind of training um, and for undergraduates who maybe don't get an introduction to this kind of work until their senior spring and, and then uh, they may not have another opportunity to, to pursue this this kind of work. But I, I think this discussion about the classroom as a first pass at doing this kind of work can be helpful in, in thinking about how we can maybe bring about broader changes and facilitate 
this kind of work outside of the classroom too. Yeah, that's a great point. Okay, well, Professor De Luna, thank you so much for joining us in this unusual time. <laughs> thank you for welcoming me. To learn more about climate change in the past, present, and future, visit historicalclimatology.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at ClimateHist. Thanks for listening to the Climate History Podcast. <laughs>